All right, everyone, welcome to Now It's Dark. This is Tim. And you notice if you looked at the episode title that Mike Wheeler is not going to be joining us today. He's actually going to be taking some time off from the podcast. But for the time being, we will be having some special guests on the show to help us out. And today's guest is another Mike, Mr. Mike Cannon. Uh, Mike, welcome to Now It's Dark. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, you also uh, co-host a podcast. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your your work on that? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm one co-host on a show called Red Star Over Asia. Uh, it's me and three Korean friends. Uh, we cover Asian politics, history, and social movements from a socialist perspective. So we have guests on to talk about uh, various historical events in Asia, contemporary politics, social movements. Our most recent episode was uh, for the anniversary of the Gwangju uprising. Um, so right. we had on the lead translator of one of the the primary texts uh, of that movement, the Gwangju Diary. So that was a pretty interesting conversation. But yeah, that's what we do. Now, you've done a lot of great work so far, and I've really enjoyed uh, listening to what you've done so far. And And I thought you were the perfect guest to bring on today to talk about the movie we're going to be discussing today, Children of Men. You actually brought this up to me a while back. You kind of mentioned that it would be good for, for us to cover this on the show. Uh, and when Mike said he had to take some time off, I thought, why not bring you on to talk about it? Because you're quite a big fan of, of Children of Men. Yeah, I am. Um, I saw it originally in, I think it was 2007 when it hit U.S. theaters. Um mm-hmm. And I was blown away by it. I thought this was a great film. But I guess, as we'll talk about later, it was initially kind of a box office bomb. It was this like big budget, brutally depressing, dystopian sci-fi film with not a lot of like you know CGI action sequences, which is like in vogue for blockbusters these days. Um, but it's since had this like interesting afterlife uh, in the you know I guess decade and a half since it came out. Like it's getting a lot more. Uh, I mean, it was critically critically well regarded universally at the time, but it's gotten a lot more um, attention uh, given the political uh, developments of of the intervening time since the film was released. So, yeah, it seems very prescient right now. I mean, there was a poll done fairly recently uh, by the BBC of 177 critics, and actually uh, placed Children of Men at number 13 of the greatest films of the 21st century. So it kind of seems like. You know, there's a lot of classic films, like, for example, Vertigo, which I think is the number one ranked movie now, according to the Sight and Sound poll, which is kind of like the poll of polls that everyone references. And it was also a box office bomb when it when it was first released. You know, this tends to happen. Movies that are ahead of their time, uh, they may not do so well. You know, if they're lucky, they'll get critical recognition. But a lot of times they don't get the audience recognition at the time because it's just it's a little too advanced, maybe, or it's a little too far ahead. People in, in 2006 may not have wanted, given, you know, the the war on terrorism and all the, the news about terrorism and, and stuff like that. They may not have wanted to sit with this rather bleak depiction 
of what life would look like in the future that was telling them, listen, everyone, things are only going to get worse. So, you know, if you're, if you're depressed now, just hold on because it's going to get much worse in a few years. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's cool that it's got another lease on life. Uh, like you, I was pretty blown away by it when I first saw it. And, you know, anytime someone asks me, like, who's your favorite director working today? I'll mention people like Paul Thomas Anderson or Wang Ga Wei or like, um, you know, maybe Ari Oster or someone like that. But for some reason, I always forget to mention Alfonso Cuaron. And he really is one of the best directors going today. I mean, if you think about it, since Children Are Men, or, or really, you could probably say since Itu Mama Tambien in, in the early 2000s, basically every film he's made has been great, except maybe for Gravity. Um, except for that, I think basically every movie he's made for the past 20 odd years has been great. Mm. Yeah, even Gravity, I mean, which was sort of like a, his, it, it, it attracted the audience that kind of likes the big spectacle of the blockbuster. And it was that. It was technically impressive in a lot of ways. But I mean, it still is a much more layered than your average like Hollywood blockbuster. There's a lot of like imagery and symbolism and stuff that you don't use. Yeah, for sure. I just didn't think it was on the level of, say, like Children of Men or Roma or something. And, you know, apparently, I guess uh, Quran wanted to be an astronaut when he was a kid. So it was kind of like Uh there's a childhood kind of wish fulfillment kind of going on there, I think. But it's still cool. cool. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. it's still very cool. Yeah. Um, For anyone who hasn't seen Children of Men, and if you haven't, I would urge you to stop right now and watch it because there's going to be a lot of spoilers going ahead. But just to give a quick rundown, maybe for people who, have, who haven't seen it in a while, the film is set in 2027 in a world where human infertility has left the world on the brink of chaos. Britain, being one of the last stable countries in the world, has become flooded with asylum seekers while various political and religious groups vie for power. One such group, an imminent rights imminent immigrant rights group called the Fishes, kidnaps the main character Theo, played by Clive Owen. He eventually discovers that his ex-wife, Julian, played by Julianne Moore, is a member of the group. She recruits him to help accompany a refugee key to the Human Project, a secretive group dedicated to finding a cure for humanity's infertility. Eventually, Theo discovers that Key is pregnant, in fact, the last pregnant woman on Earth, and that bringing her to safety to the Human Project may determine the fate of all humankind. As I mentioned, it stars Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, Michael Caine, uh, Chuitel Ejiofor, and Hope Claire Ashity. And yeah, it's it's the sort of story where on paper, I think it could have been a very, or at least a much more traditional sci-fi sort of film, dystopian sort of film. And yet Corone kind of manages to transform it. Um, what did it feel like? Because I remember you. we both watched it when it first was released, and we both rewatched it very recently what did it feel like to rewatch this film again in 2021 like six years from the actual time in which the movie is 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 set yeah so yeah the film is sent 2027 so it's like we're sort of uh it's always interesting to watch these like films made like a decade or more in the past that were like set like now <laughs> and like as you're yes. approaching when the film is set you're like kind of like reflecting on what is similar about what was happening in the film and what's actually happening now that we're there on the clock, you know? Um, but yeah, when I first saw the film, like, yeah, I immediately was blown away. It was a very intense experience. Um, 
one thing that I guess popped out, I'm a huge fan of Andrei Tarkovsky, the Russian mm. uh, Soviet filmmaker, um, who's kind of famous for his like concept of sculpting in time, like very long shots where he just kind of lets the scene marinate for a while. Uh, and this right. film is is famous, rightly so. One of the things that it's uh, critically lauded for is the uh, how well done these like long shot scenes are. Some of which are sort of like digitally composited to make it look like an extended scene. But there are right. I, like there is like yeah, Kiran is very much kind of into that. You have to like let things kind of like sit and marinate for a while. Um, like for example, there's a scene in the film where. There's a car crash and the car is raided and one of the characters is shot and it's this very chaotic scene. And Kiran in one of his interviews said, yeah, we didn't want to do like a flash cut because that's not what like random violence looks like. Right. Right. Um, random violence is just random. It's chaotic and you have to just like right. sit and look at it. You can't just like cut to the sexy angle or whatever. So I was yeah. on a technical level. I was impressed by that. Just the cinematography of it. Um, but also like uh, thinking about it, how, how I watched it then and how I watch it now. I mean, in the film, you know, this is obviously a decaying world. The infertility crisis is like the, the obviously the primary uh, crisis driving uh, the collapse of this world. But there's references in the film to like an earlier flu pandemic, which uh, it's revealed uh, is why the child of Theo and Julian um, died. Uh, yeah, and that, that, was that crazy. made me That's... think about Corona. Like, obviously, like yeah. COVID nineteen is sort of like uh, you can't help but make parallels. It's like is COVID nineteen just like the prelude for like a much bigger crisis? And then there was recently just actually I think it was like right when you we were talking about this film when we had dinner. Like there was an article in the New York Times about this new book that's been studying declining sperm counts in men and like it right. increases in uh, kind of genetic. Uh, abnormalities and general infertility in both men and women. Um, and that made a big splash. So yeah, the film seems like more is uh, as prescient as ever. But uh, there was another interesting interview with Kirion where uh, apparently he doesn't like it when people like say the film was predictive. He was like, no, I, the film was about the world in 2006. Like the world was fucked up yeah. then too. Like I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't predicting something. Um, it's just the world has gotten more fucked up. So, uh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Like the, he was really trying to make a, a movie about the present, but also, I mean, he did his research in terms of kind of like moving the present forward to, to the point where it would be what the world would look like if existing trends continued. Mm -hmm. And one thing I really, yeah, I mean, I was kind of blown away by the flu pandemic reference. So I was like, that's something that totally like, I think went over everyone's head when the movie was first released. And now it's like, my God, this, you know, just another layer that makes this movie more prescient. And I also think like, I, I just found myself much more moved by the, the idea of like the conceit of the film in terms of like the, you know, hu humanity as a species being something that's at stake, you know, cause like in 2006, abstractly i think that was something you could definitely feel and if you were you know heavily involved in looking at different conflicts like the war in iraq or something like that that's something that you could definitely feel uh you know empathy for but i think since covid and and with you know climate change and stuff like that like it's it's become much more of a visceral sort of concern and to have a movie that addresses the survival of humanity in a very non-sentimental 
in a very earned sort of way, it was very moving to me um, this time around in a way that it wasn't, I was marveled by it and I, I loved it the first time I saw it, but I, I don't remember being as emotionally moved by it the first time I saw it. Yeah, I mean, I watched it. We both watched it recently. I watched it with my wife. Uh, she had never seen it before, and she uh, was think she made a lot of drew a lot of the same parallels to like the contemporary situation. I mean, another thing I think is relevant too. I mean, this was relevant in two thousand six. It's it's relevant now too. Uh, is like in the film, there's just a total like collapse of political alternatives, right? I mean, you have, you know, Britain is basically like a a closed like sort of autarkic military dictatorship. Um, so, you know, obviously there's parallels with Brexit, um, there, um, and a lot of the, the migrants, you know, there's parallels to the migrant crisis. Uh, what was that into that? That was a few years ago. The, after the Libyan war, there was a huge influx of migrants into the EU. Uh, I mean, when I was seeing that on the news, I immediately thought of children of men because throughout the film, it's just sort of, and another interesting about that is sort of casual in the background. There's just like immigrants in cages and people are just walking to work and getting coffee and stuff. And there's, it's yeah. just sort of people don't think about it. Um, you know, the banality of evil kind of thing. Um, but uh, another thing you see in the film is like, there's just a total sense of like collective spiritual exhaustion. And like the, the one political radical political alternative that's presented in the film are the fishes, which is this, yeah. this sort of like, you know, extreme ultra left, like, you know, red army faction kind of like group that is clearly has, doesn't have much of a mass base uh, in the, in the general society and they're very sectarian. And, um, uh, I mean, it is kind of a, there is like a little bit, there is like a strain of nihilism in the film, uh, until the end. I mean, there is a, it, it ultimately doesn't being end up being a nihilistic film, but like the world that it's painting through most of the film is it's like, there is no alternative. People are just waiting it out. Um, and then you have the, uh, the, the, the government sponsored suicide kits. What is it like? Uh, quietus. Yeah. Quietus. Yeah. Uh, which is I also that was a good great. music magazine. Um, but <laughs> um, yeah, so it's like, yeah, there's just no no future, no alternative. Um, this is something I, I I heard Zizek make a reference to recently where he's, you know, I love his kind of, uh, um, you know, anti-conventional sort of ways of thinking. But he's saying like, yeah, everyone, you know, he hates these sort of cliches about, you know, well, things will get better. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And he's like, no, like you have to embrace hopelessness. And he always makes this joke where, yes, there is a light at the tunnel. It's the oncoming train that's about to kill you, you know. And what I like about Children of Men is it's not afraid to fully immerse itself in the hopelessness of, I guess, that era and of, I guess, the political conditions of of that time and increasingly our own right now. Uh, I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about Alfonso Cuaron before we get into the, the making of the film, you know, some kind of production information, and then get deeper into our own analysis because Alfonso Cuaron is someone who I think was, was born into just the right time. I think to be able to understand these sorts of conditions, he was born in 1961 in Mexico city and he was the son of a doctor and a biochemist. And if you've seen his 2018 film, Roma, you kind of get a sense of what his childhood was like. It's, it's kind of based on his, his upbringing. He grew up in, in relative privilege. And you see in Roma, uh, the main character based on his real-life nanny, uh, Laboria Rodriguez, who's an indig- indigenous mixed-tech woman who helped raise Coron and his siblings 
after their father left the family when he was 10. And Roma also highlights the political unrest of Mexico in the late 1960s. This is actually from a New York Times article on Peron, but it says, quote, half of Mexico's domestic income was pocketed by less than a quarter of its workforce. Destitute peasants fled to urban centers where they settled in shanty towns. In 1968, when thousands of students gathered at the Tolatoloco housing complex to protest the violence of Mexico City's police, the government opened fire on them. In 1971, it slaughtered protesters again during the Corpus Christi massacre. So you kind of get the sense that Alfonso Cuaron, his upbringing was kind of being sheltered from all this political unrest happening in the background. You know, like it's, it's no wonder that that kind of developed into a stylistic technique of his because he was very much kind of, you know, sheltered from a lot of that stuff, but also getting, I guess, hints of it from people he knew, including his uncle, uh, who's actually a member of the Communist Party in Mexico, who told him stories about what was happening in the Mexican streets. And incidentally, uh, Coron's uncle also became friends with uh, uh, what is it, Ramon uh, Mercader, the the guy who assassinated Trotsky? Yeah, yeah. And um, really he actually he helped, I guess, figure out the true identity of this guy, and and yeah, befriended him, which is really interesting, actually. From all this, I, I think Corone kind of saw movies as an escape, um, not only from his his family situation, but also just kind of like the unrest of the time, because. Mexico, the sense I get is that Mexico was kind of transforming from this really secretive, insular sort of uh, economy, this this booming economy, to one that was being racked by its own internal contradictions and unrest and inequality and stuff like that. And there was a lot of repression of free speech, but as well as, you know, of, of cultural sort of production and films and stuff like that. So it's no wonder that Corone kind of gravitated towards films and, you know, particularly foreign films, European films, European art house films and, and American films and stuff. He actually got a Super 8 camera from his mom and started making little movies. He would eventually find a kindred spirit in Emmanuel Chivo Lubeski, who, if you know anything about Corone, it's his main collaborator. It's a cinematographer on so many of his films. He's the guy who helps kind of uh, I guess, make the style that Corona is known for, these long takes, these really immersive uh, ways of shooting things. And uh, they would actually be in film school together. Corona enrolled in film school as a teenager. Um, another kind of cool incident, the film school was eventually, uh, while he was there, taken over by communist groups, which I guess Corona kind of clashed with. Um, I get the sense that he was kind of like, I mean, he's described himself as kind of a brat, you know, when he was growing up. And uh, I guess he actually got kicked out of film school for making a film in English, which apparently was not allowed or something. (laughs) And I almost get the sense he did that on purpose just to like kind of piss people off. After a short time working at the National Museum of Art in Mexico, he was offered a job in the film industry. He did a bunch of kind of he did odd jobs, you know, everything from boom operator to, you know, uh, editing and stuff like that. He eventually worked his way up to becoming a sought after assistant director. In the uh, in the late 80s, he and Lubeski were actually offered the chance to direct a Mexican show called uh, Hora Maracada, I think it's called. A Twilight Zone knockoff that Corone and others called the Toilet Zone for its dismal budget, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I thought was funny. 
he actually met uh, Guillermo del Toro there uh, while oh, working on that show. So there's a lot of cool connections there. Um, this experience inspired him to write his first feature with his brother, Carlos Solo con tu Pariha. I apologize to anyone who actually speaks Spanish. Um, <laughs> this eventually led to an offer from Sidney Pollack to direct an episode of his series, Fallen Angels. And from there, he would kind of make his way into Hollywood. Uh, Corona and Lobeski worked together in a number of films, including the children's movie, A Little Princess, the Charles Dickens adaptation, Great Expectations, and the film that brought him to international attention, 2001's Y Tu Mama Tambien. He would go on to make, well, Harry Potter, one of the Harry Potter episodes, as well as Children of Men, Gravity, and Roma. Uh, Gravity would earn him a Best Director Oscar and Lubeski a Best Cinematography Oscar, while Roma would actually win both awards for Caron. Caron was actually his own cinematographer on Roma. So quite a progression. And... I really liked and enjoyed reading about how Caron's kind of own biography mirrored some of the most interesting sort of trends going on, not only in Mexico, but kind of in the world, you know, like he, he very much, I guess, was personally aware of inequality, both, you know, in terms of racism, but also economic inequality. And I see elements of that throughout all of his films, you know, um, do you recall the first time you actually became aware of Caron as a director and, and what your, your first film of his that you, you saw was? Well, it's interesting. I had seen Itu Mamba Tambien uh, before I saw Children of Men, but I didn't make the connection. So I, I saw Children of Men in the uh, theater and I was like, wow, this film is incredible. I, I want to see everything this director has done. Right. And then I went back and looked at what he did and I was like, oh, he's the guy who did Itu Mamba Tambien. So I started, went back and watched that film. Um, which it's a very different film in a lot of ways, but like there's a lot of similarities too. Um, and I think one, I think Kiron said him this said this himself, or maybe it was a, a critic who who said this. Like both films are sort of like road movies in a weird way. Like usually yeah. you think of the road movie as sort of like you know a bunch of friends just like going on an adventure on the road, which I mean it's kind of true with Children of Men, but it's like far from a good time, right? It's a very bleak yeah. <laughs> road trip. But Itumambi <laughs> Tambien like. Uh, initially it has this, like, uh, it's like what two Mexican teenagers with this like middle-aged woman mm -hmm. and they're on this like adventure. It's later revealed that she has terminal cancer and she's just sort of like living, uh, she's just sort of going wild towards the end of her life. Um, so yeah, but a lot of like the stylistic stuff is very similar. Um, but yeah, I did not, I didn't know who he was when I'd seen that film. I didn't bother to look when I'd seen Itzumama Timmy and I hadn't bothered to look into the director and then I saw children of men and, and made the connection later. Um, I've never, I never read the Harry Potter books or have seen a Harry Potter film, but my friends who do like Harry Potter, most of them say that the, uh, the one he directed, which I guess was the third film. There's like seven or eight of them. The uh, prisoner of, they, they regard that one as the best one, the best. Cause I mean, obviously that kind of film. And I think he himself has said this, like that kind of big franchise studio film, like you're going to be constrained somewhat as a director. Um, yeah. And he says that like the fact that he was so constrained, like meant that he had a lot of free time while he was filming in London, uh, which gave him time to work on Children of Men, uh, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I thought that I was really impressed by how he was able to transition from like kind of, you know, rising up through the ranks in the Mexican film industry to like taking on these Hollywood projects and really succeeding. I think he kind of 
he talks about like great expectations as being a disappointment for him. It didn't do that well, I think, but he very quickly kind of, uh, you know, readjusted, recalibrated and everything he's done kind of since then has been really good. And his ability to kind of seamlessly move from, I guess, Hollywood to more personal projects in Mexico. Um, you know, you mentioned E2 Mama Tambien as being like, that's a movie he made after his experience in Hollywood, mm. you know, and he kind of, I guess he took a lot of like the technical knowledge he learned because he talks about the Mexican film industry when he was growing up kind of being like technically very shoddy. And he and Lubisky really wanted to like, uh, you know, change that. They wanted to make technically superior films, but also like that's a movie that could only be made in Mexico. You know, it's just that experience and, and taking that lens of growing up in Mexico really informs, I think, a lot of his work in, in Hollywood. And I don't know. He just like, there's very few filmmakers, I think, that are that like personally connected to, you know, uh, political unrest like he is. Like a lot of filmmakers tend to be brought up in, in very, in circumstances where they're very sheltered from that sort of thing. And I guess, mm-hmm. you know, Cron kind of was, but he became aware of it. And I guess he kind of reconnected with it in a way. Um, I, I remember like seeing Great Expectations and having no idea even years later when I saw Children of Men and Gravity and, and uh, Itumama Tambien that this was the same guy, you know, like it, he just totally seemed to transform. But I just remember like wanting to, to figure out who this guy was and how he came to direct the movies that he did, because it just seemed like such an amazing idea, this concept of like making a film. It's almost like two films layered on top of each other, like, yeah, a road movie or like a more traditional straight ahead dystopian movie layered on top of this almost like documentary about, you know, social and political conditions. And I'm like, what an amazing way to sneak in, you know, political commentary into a Hollywood formula. Right. And I thought that was brilliant on his part and, and Lubezki too. Mm. No, for sure. I mean, there's, I, he's like, I can't think of a contemporary director who like kind of, is doing the same thing that he's doing. Um, Cause you know, like a lot of directors who would make a film like children of men. Cause you're yeah. Curon was able to thread the steel. like, he can do a Harry Potter film and, but he can also like kind of make it interesting, which I've not seen that film, but my friends who like Harry Potter have said, it's like by far the most unique and interesting and darkest of the, of the whole film series. But then, you know, that gives him the credibility and like the production backing from the, you know, the, Hollywood bigwigs to like make something like children of men um, that can appeal to a wide audience, but also have all the subversive stuff layered into it. Um, Cause you know, right. You know, now like in the age of like the, the tentpole, like kind of Marvel film thing, it's very, it's more difficult than ever for like a filmmaker like that to, to get, uh, get in a position where they can even make a film. Right. Oh yeah. Um, well, and Corona mentioned too, like actually JK Rowling, like wanted him, to direct. She was very much pushing for him mm. to be the director of uh, The Prisoner of Azkaban. I yeah, she it's says called. it's by far her favorite film in the series, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, speaking of writers, um, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about P.D. James and her book, Children of Men, which I have not read, but you have. And I guess the film takes a lot of liberties with the, with the novel, um, James has described her novel as a Christian fable, for example, which doesn't fully translate into the movie, but there's definitely elements of it there. But 
just in general, like what are your thoughts on the novel and how it's adapted? Well, the novel, so I read, I saw the film and then I looked up things about the director. I kind of like looked into the film and various things around it. And I found out it was based on a novel, P.D. James, which I had actually read some of her stuff before. She's a, uh, she's quite, she's still alive, I think. She's quite old, but uh, she's a British writer, mostly known for detective fiction. And uh, Children of Men was sort of her foray into kind of dystopian sort of semi-sci-fi stuff. Um, but I read the novel afterwards, um, and yeah, it's very, very different. Um, uh, basically, I think Curon was presented with the concept. I guess they what someone wanted to to get the production rights. They thought this would make an interesting film. Um, so the concept of infertility, what the world looks like when no one can have children anymore. Um, you know, this sort of uh, militaristic, closed-off Britain in a collapsing world. Like, I think he found that premise very exciting and interesting, and, like, you could do a lot with that. Um, but as I recall, he actually refused to read the novel itself because he didn't want to be influenced by it, right? Sort of yeah. like musicians, like, some musicians will, like, deliberately not listen to other musicians because they don't want to be influenced by them. They want to, like, bring everything from within themselves. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when you read the novel, like the, some of the names are the same. The setting is essentially the same. I mean, the fishes, for example, are much more of a sort of like liberal kind of uh, pro-democracy group. That's like petitioning the government and stuff. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's a completely different book. Um, you know, and it's always hard because people always say, yeah, the book's always better than the movie or the film or whatever. I mean, film and books are like very different and they have their strengths and weaknesses as like mediums of storytelling and art. Um, For sure. But I would say like to the extent you can't compare, I would say that Children of Men is a rare instance where the film like far surpasses the uh, source material. Um, right. So uh, and again, they basically took the premise, which is brilliant. I mean, I'll give P.D. James uh, credit. It's a brilliant premise. Like once you once the world can no longer have children, you can you can go a lot of directions with that. Um you know, it's sort of like children and men uh, having this afterlife and gaining more recognition and relevance uh, a decade and a half on. It reminds me of how zombie films have become so uh, ubiquitous, right? right? Like, I think it says something about the state of the culture and politics that's like zombie film, like with The Walking Dead. I mean, look at in South Korea where we live. Zombie films are, you have uh, Kingdom and you have uh, uh, Train to Busan. Like this is... The sense that like we're sort of like rootless. We've you know there's the sense of impending apocalypse. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, it was a brilliant premise, and the reason that that film c continues to have relevance is because people kind of at one level or another like recognize that it it speaks to like the world as it is. It's not like a distant dystopian nightmare. Like the nightmare is right now in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think you hit on something really interesting, which is how apparently like Corona was not originally interested in the novel, but it was after 9-11 that he actually turned back to it and, and became interested in it because it, it had been floating around for a while. I guess there were adaptations written by a number of different screenwriters. But after 9-11, I think Corona saw the prescience of it. And, and like you said before, he was was really disinterested in making like a a far off sort of sci-fi depiction of reality. He wanted to make science fiction be actually an expression of our present moment. And 9/11 provided him I think with the 
I guess the awareness, the recognition that it could be done mm-hmm. in, you know, you could make a, a science fiction futuristic dystopian movie about the present and still have audiences kind of connect to it. And, you know, he, I think by refusing to read the source material, which, you know, was quite a bold move, it also allowed him to kind of fill the world of Children of Men with his own concerns and to kind of just take infertility as a metaphor. He called it a metaphor for a lack of hope and lack of respect for life. And, you know, it is a very sort of um, powerful metaphor in that regard. Uh, Unfortunately for him, he wasn't able to get it made right away. I mean, it's a hard sell at any point in time. I I think now it would be impossible to make this film. But even in, you know, the early 2000s, he couldn't really convince producers to sign off for it. So he actually had to take the offer to direct Harry Potter first. And that gave him the clout to kind of make this film. But it also just, um, it, it gave him insight into into England and its class system, you know, shooting in London, shooting uh, Harry Potter. And it also, I think, gave him a lot of experience with effects, like CGI and stuff like that, because, you know, there's a ton in the Harry Potter series. And I think it allowed him to kind of like develop this grab bag of tricks that he could take uh, forward on future films. Um Actually, I was interested in, in preparation for this film. Uh, him and uh, Timothy Sexton is his screenwriter, co, uh, co-writer on the film. They actually uh, visited New York City after 9-11 just to kind of get a sense of what it was like. And they also went to uh, Milan, where there were a bunch of anti-globalization protests going on mm-hmm. and London as well. So like much like uh, Itumama Tambien, he seems like a director who who draws a lot of inspiration from from actual settings. Like he needs to kind of get a sense of of the physicality of a place and what protests and you know political conflicts look like on the ground. And he also um, apparently used a lot of inspiration from Clive Owen. They, they kind of say Clive Owen was kind of an unofficial. Uh, co-writer on the film and I think he probably added a lot of you know Britishisms to to his character and probably to the film um, and I think you know uh, like Chivo or, or Lubeski was was key as well in terms of being a collaborator but I kind of just wanted to like you know in terms of the the political conflicts or conflicts of that time the anti-globalization protests um, you know, 9-11 and stuff like that. Like, why do you think that triggered uh, this vision for him? Like, what what was it about that that made Children of Men, you know, seem like a a, a, a likely project for him or, or make it appealing for him? Well, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I mean, the way that, you know, because, uh, you know, after the Cold War ended, the USSR dissolves and there is this sort of like triumphant de- declaration of the end of history. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, what we would call like sort of normal bourgeois parliamentary democracy. We have elections every few years. You know, there are all no, there are no more alternatives. Fascism is long gone, uh, you know, uh, sort of, you know, stagnant, you know, quote unquote, communism, state socialism has has fallen apart and they've embraced, you know, kind of shock therapy, neoliberal capitalism. Uh, China has sort of like gradually in, uh, embraced the market, et cetera. So like, you know, before 9-11, you know, that's, uh, 
that sense of triumphalism um, that, you know, history is sort of like apexed at, uh, at capitalism as like the final form of human society. Um, the end of history. Yeah, the end of history. Um, and 9-11, uh, and I want to be careful saying this, it's not, it's by no means like an endorsement of 9-11 or something, but just, I think it's just an objective, like recognition that like that was like a radical rupture and disruption in that narrative, right? Like this was a radically illiberal uh, movement, Al Qaeda, you know, radical Islam, whatever people want to call it, that uh, uh, committed this really uh, this act that totally shredded that narrative. Um, and then that takes us into the Iraq War, which kicks up global protests and sort of reinvigorates the left in various ways, and and it no longer is a settled question that this is the end of history. Like the prospect of like radical alternatives uh, is in play again. Um, But there's also a sense like, you know, there, there's a sense in children and men that like, yeah, we're no longer, you know, just going to get wealthier and wealthier and like the stock market's great. And like, you know, next generation will be better than the one after that. Like it raises all these questions. There's like a, a total, like, uh, for 9-11 was like fundamentally changed. It was a traumatizing event for the Western world. I mean, of, of oh, course, yeah. obviously the US, but I mean, not just in terms of the immediate trauma, like the just violence and death and despair and, you know, all the residual consequences, but just po- like collectively, psychologically, um, it was traumatizing and it still in, in uh, affects how we th- think politically. Um, so I think that, uh, that 9-11, um, tearing into that narrative, which seemed to be the consensus that history's ended, we've reached sort of the apex of civilization. It's smooth sailing from here. Um, I think that probably gave a lot of impetus for the film and the direction that it took as he was making it. um, Well, it's random thoughts about that. Supremely ironic that Francis Fukuyama mentions Children of Men as one of his favorite films. Because, you know, infamously, he's the guy who kind of made the case for the end of history. Like, all right, we've reached it. We figured it out. Like, you know, free market, liberal democracies are the way to go. And it's really interesting to hear him talk about and mention children of men as like one of his favorite films. And I almost wonder in a way, if there's kind of like a, an acknowledgement on his part or, or something that, not meant, or maybe it, it isn't the end all be all, or maybe they're, you know, it's an acknowledgement at least of a rupture. And like you said, this incredible violence of 9-11 and also the war on terror, you know, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, like it just shattered this kind of sense that there was a consensus, that there was, you know, peace, that we'd figured things out. And it also did start to, along with the anti-globalization protests and stuff, like it led to things like Empire, you know, the Michael Hart, Antonio Negri mm. book, where it's like they're proposing a a kind of a way forward, a, a way to kind of what what a vision of, you know, like leftist movements put into action or leftist praxis would look like in terms of social transformation and stuff. And it was at least an attempt to kind of fly in the face of that... Um, 
I don't know, but I don't think it's Zizek who first coined this phrase of like, it's it's easier for people to imagine the end of the world than an end to capitalism. I think it was Frederick um, Jameson, but I could be wrong. Frederick Jameson, that. that's Zizek it. Zizek yeah. popularized it, yeah. 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 And that was kind of a, a, a book that said, well, no, we can imagine an end to capitalism, you know, and an, and an end to this kind of consensus. And so it's interesting that you have like at this period, uh, such a sense of like, you know, the world's is going through this transformative moment and there's there's so much terror and violence, but there's also like people thinking about ways forward and ways past this. And there's protests against globalization and and the war on terror. And so I think Caron was really right to see this as a moment for transformation and an opening to start, I guess, not only acknowledging what the world could look like if all these trends kind of like continued downward, but also like what would have to happen in some respects for like, I guess, humanity to get its act together. Cause like you said before, he's not thinking in terms of a political movement or a political program. He's really just thinking more on a, uh, what was the word you used before? Like a post ideological, like almost just a humanistic level, you know? And so it's interesting that, you know, he actually says that he drew inspiration from Slavoj Zizek and, you know, the guy who famously said, like, ev- ideology is everywhere, <laughs> you know, like he was right. the the person more than anyone making the case that you can't be post ideological. And, you know, he's also drawing Caron was from Naomi Klein and, you know, people like that. But I think Caron is very good about diagnosing, like, what's, I guess, the, the political conditions of his time and re- really good about kind of projecting them forward. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a, we've talked about this before, Mark Fisher, the uh, the late, great Mark Fisher, God rest his soul, but uh, mm-hmm. he wrote an interesting book that our local reading group uh, recently read, Capitalist Realism, um, and that term, by what he means by that, capitalist realism, is the the inability to imagine anything beyond the current circumstances. Um, you know, right. Thatcher famously said, there is no alternative, like, you can't right. think outside of neoliberal capitalism like this is it um sort of like you're in a bubble universe and you can't escape to another dimension this is it don't even try articulating any radical alternative um and you know capitalist realism infects the left in a certain way because like you know look at the contemporary left like what are our primary demands right it's you know kind of like you know and i support these demands obviously like you know i'm Mm -hmm. a dsa member like i support all this stuff medicare for all like rebuilding the welfare state but i mean these are these are programmatic items that would have not been uncommon on like the election manifesto of a center right Swedish party in the 1960s. Right. Like these aren't like if you, I mean, if you actually start like earnestly talking about like revolution and overcoming capitalism and socialism, like as something beyond just like a welfare state and more social programs, I mean, you kind of sound like a crazy person. Um, You will start to think you're sounding like a crazy person. So there is this sense that we're like, sort of like, like we don't have the language or imagination to articulate an alternative. And, you know, to Kiron's credit, because one of the great things about this film is it's like it would have been a much weaker film had it had this like obvious like political message. Like, all right, here's the fucked up world and this is the obvious thing we do to fix it. Yeah. It, like there's sort of a modesty in like admitting like there is no clear like solution to this. But, you know, the film is good about like elucidating the problem and like the predicament that we're in in a really vivid, visceral uh, emotive way, um, which is helpful, helps you think more clearly about the problem. 
Um, when also so by I think that's one things... of the brilliant aspects of the film because you know something I sometimes I don't like like kind of I don't know if we would characterize Children of Men as like a Marxist or leftist film, but mm-hmm. sometimes like you know films or even like leftist music that's just too on the nose, right? It's like come on, use a little more metaphors and stuff. Uh, like, yeah. So yeah, it, it's not like heavy handed, and it's not like trying like you don't watch Children of Men and feel like you're like watching political propaganda, right? Um, it's just sort of like a really it's like he's painting like a a scene of what the world is like. Well, and and one thing that's brilliant about his approach to filmmaking is by putting these things in the background, he doesn't have to comment on them. Like they don't have to be the text of the film. They're much stronger as subtext. And you know, that, that approach that he took on Itumama Tambien it on that film, he could actually draw on real sociology, like the real social context of Mexico in 1999 In children of men, you know, he and Lubetsky and his other collaborators, they had to imagine and create the social framework of 2027. And so he's obviously drawing from a lot of like, you know, uh, commentary and analysis from from Zizek and, and other people. But also just like aesthetically, he's drawing from films like The Battle of Algiers, you know, where they meticulously recreated uh, and reconstructed the social reality of the the war of independence in, in Algeria. And, you know, he's also drawing from Kubrick, like A Clockwork Orange. And, uh, you know, even uh, I read he he referenced F.W. Murnau's Sunrise, an old silent film kind of. Yeah, I love that film. It's one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. And by kind of loading up the, the film with background information, they they kind of developed this approach where you're just being overloaded with information that's never really being spoon fed to you, pointed out to you. Well, it's, it's it's pointed out to you, but it's like it's not heavy handed. And but, you know, the, the frames are just filled with so much stuff Um he apparently said, Corone, that he informed his art department to kind of design the film as, as a kind of anti-Blade Runner. Mm, and yeah, I saw that. That's an interesting direction to give. Yeah, I love that concept because, like, I love Blade Runner and he loves Blade Like, everyone loves Blade Runner. But, like, what that means is that you avoid these kind of Sid Mead, you know, futuristic designs. And you reference the present. You know, you kind of mm. project the present forward. So he... Instead of like, you know, hiring futurists to design these crazy cars and stuff like that, he would bring them photographs from Palestine and Iraq and Northern Ireland and Sri Lanka and the Balkans, you know, and Chernobyl even. And he even, you know, kind of told them to dress the sets to make London look more like Mexico City. And, you know, that meant kind of making them look a little more run down and poverty stricken. And you see this in some of the scenes where... You know, like it does have this sense of just kind of a world falling apart. And um, he even like went so far as to kind of like talk with with some experts and stuff and figure out like, okay, how many immigrants like from Asia, from Africa, from other parts of Europe, like Eastern Europe, would there be? And he tried to like demographically represent that in the extras, Mm -hmm. you know, so they meticulously went into detail about who should be shown in the background, what should be shown in the background. And I I know, like, I definitely subconsciously picked up on that when I was watching the film for the first time. But it's it's definitely something that, like, it's so rich 
that you kind of like you find yourself like moved by it or like there's something going on in the background that like you don't have to know exactly what it is and it's almost more powerful that you don't know exactly what it is like he's not saying like oh well you know like a classic sci-fi film would be like 2027 immigrants have been detained for you you know and it's like no he's just letting you get it and letting you figure it out on your own well, he made an interesting comment that it's like, you know, Michael Bay, he actually called out Michael Bay, you know, the Transformers <laughs> guy, you know, who himself admits that he just makes movies for 13 year old boys, which, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was like Michael Bay could have taken the premise and made a very different film where it's like the world is ending and Tom Cruise <laughs> is going to save the last baby. You know, like you could have gone <laughs> in that direction with it. But uh, yeah, like the film, like, you know, you can this film is like infinitely rewatchable. It's sort of like you know, like a great album, you can listen to it many, many times in different ways and still extract pieces from it. Like every time you watch Children of Men, you notice something in the background. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that's one of the brilliant things about the film is there's just so many layers that you can just keep on excavating and finding new things every time you watch it. Well, I, I love, like, this is something I picked up on the last time I watched it is, is Lubetsky's cinematography because he had just come from making The New World with Terrence Malick. And he was really kind of obsessed with this idea of like, all right, every bit of lighting in this film, we're not using extra lights. We're not using artificial lights. All the lighting in the film comes from the scene itself. So like when they're in the refugee camp, like the fire is the thing lighting the scene. Mm. And you can imagine like it's probably got to make things easier in terms of just shooting these long sequences, but it also just makes the world so much more organic. And one thing I really liked is this constant, like in so many of the scenes outdoors, the sun is constantly setting, mm. you know, and it's like, it's kind of this visual reminder that, you know, the sun is setting on humanity, like extinction is looming. Like it's, it's kind of the, the sunset period of, of the human species. Mm-hmm. And that's just like another visual sort of cue that you pick up on in the background. That's so much stronger because you have to figure it out on your own. And I really like that. And of course, like the the long takes too, which, you know, they can, long takes can be almost this like spectacle thing. And I'm, I'm always so impressed by how Corone and Lubeski are able to avoid that. Like they feel so organic mm-hmm. and so immersive and never for a moment do you feel like this is done to impress you. Like it just feels like the right way to shoot. Yeah, it's not a gimmick. Yeah. No, yeah. no. And, you know, like the... The, the car ambush scene, I think, like they had to build their own camera equipment for that. You know, they had to build this, uh, I think it's called a doggy cam. And it's like the car is being driven by this like almost go-kart. And they have this like rig on top of the car where they're able to like turn the camera around. Actors are ducking out of the way so the camera can move where it wants. The windshield like is able to be pulled away when they need to, you know, uh, do that. And it's like, it's just an incredible bit of choreography that he's doing. And like that, the, the uprising sequence at the end where you have this scene that's over six minutes long where my God, like buildings are being demolished. Tanks are coming in. Like there's so many squibs that are being used. Apparently that took, uh, what was it? 14 days. Yeah. And they didn't get it right until like the last two days or something. Well, they only shot apparently on the last day because they're doing 13 days of preparation or something like that. And, you know, it's, 
the story goes that they they shot once one take and i think Caron's head got in the way because he he didn't duck at the right time so like all right let's re you know set up again it takes hours to set up again and apparently they only had one more crack at it and so they shot it again and Caron says at one point a squib misfired and blood splattered into the camera and he yelled cut but because there was this explosion going on at the same time nobody heard him hmm. And so they kept rolling. And after they finished the scene, he went to Lubetsky and Clive Owen. He's like, ah, I'm sorry. Like, it's not good. And Lubetsky was like, are you crazy? Like, that's a miracle. Like, that's that bl- that squib flying into the, the camera is like, that's something perfect. Yeah, like, that was a jarring. That scene, I remember watching that in the film. Like, the blood splays on the camera. And it's like, yeah, shit. This just became like, you feel like you're like in it, you know. like It's so documentary. Uh, like, it yeah. just... I, that that's the first thing I remember about that scene is like, okay, what, like this is real now. And yeah, I thought they had planned that. I, I didn't know about that until you sent me that article. Like I had no idea it was like a accident. I mean, which is, you know, so many great moments in like film history are, are like that. Right. Uh, uh, there's another film uh, directed by Carol Reed, but Orson Welles, it's sort of associated with him. He plays the villain, the third man. He improvises this line um, towards the end of the film. Uh, and he says, you know, uh, uh, Switzerland had peace and brotherly love for 500 years and they produced the cuckoo clock. You know, Italy had <laughs> violence and chaos and terror for hundreds of years. They produced Michelangelo and all of these other great arts. So it's like uh, there's all these like weird accidents of film history. Um, yeah. And, so. and speaking of long takes and Orson Welles um, in a touch of evil, you know, they have that famous opening long take, which is like up until that point, the the probably the longest long take there was and it's still like an amazing scene but orson welles kept saying like they set everything up and you know it's this complex thing a guy puts a bomb in a trunk and then you see charlton heston and his his uh love interest kind of walking around and you see this car with a bomb in the back of it constantly kind of coming in and out of the scene and it ends with them like going through immigration and then the bomb goes off and so Wells said, like, we kept doing it because, like, everything would be perfect until we got to the guy who all, his only line is passports, please. And he kept messing that up because <laughs> he's like the guy knew that, like, there's so much pressure was riding on him just saying the, that one stupid line that he kept fucking it up. And, yeah, I mean, my heart goes out to anyone making long takes because it, it's a hard thing to do. And you got to imagine, and Corona's mentioned this too, like a hard thing to sell because it's like you're on set for 13 days, you're not shooting. And like producers are standing around and me like, come on, like you're wasting time. We're renting out tanks here. And for him to be able to say like, no, like we need this time to get this right. It's, it's an incredibly bold move. And these still, like, I remember the ambush sequence being like just so thrilling Because like every moment of that, and I've seen analysis of this where it's like every shot is like leading you to the next moment. Like even when the camera is panning right, the windshield is cracking alongside, you know, the camera. And like every moment is kind of planned out. And just when you think things have gotten crazy with, you know, when Julianne Julianne Moore's character gets shot, you know, like it ends with the guy killing two cops, <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's just constantly upping the ante. And 
I've seen people try to replicate this and they never get it right because I, it, it feels like the, the cues are never as organic and as well kind of figured out as, as Corona and Lubetsky's are, mm. you know, like it's the motivation is constantly there for the camera to move around and man, they just nail it. And it's just like, it just goes so seamlessly with the content of the film. Yeah, you never get the sense that this is just like sort of a technical gimmick, you know. It's not like, oh, let's just do this because it'll like, you know, be impressive. It's very much rooted in the story and the narrative they're trying to tell. Well, and just think about like how how tough it must have been for them to do that opening bomb sequence too, right? Because the they filmed that on Fleet Street and like a month and a half before or something like that, London had just been bombed. Like there were 52 people killed. There were nearly 800 injured. I mean, then he he films a terrorist bombing on Fleet Street like a month later. Hmm. And man, like that must have been tough um, to to get people to go along with that. Um, Just having, you know, like imagine trying to film a terrorist bombing in New York. I mean, it's just I'm surprised they got the permit to do that. to be honest yeah 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 um, I, apparently he had done it beforehand and they kind of like they reluctantly allowed him to go through with it and stuff mm-hmm. but yeah. there's also this great story too about <laughs> when they're shooting that and um you know crone is, is they're trying to set it up and it just doesn't feel right and crone notices all these cars in the background he's like these cars should be messed up they're too nice <laughs> and he just starts jumping on them and like yeah. smashing them and then at one point he's like we own these cars right like, oh, we do now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah. That, yeah. No, man, he's he's such a like. Uncompromising, uh, yeah. He's uncompromising. And that's like, this movie messed him up. Like the reception of it, I guess, like really messed him up. Because when it didn't get the audience response, <clears throat> I think it really kind of drained him emotionally. Um, I mean, it did, like you said before, it did pretty well critically. It premiered at Venice in, in uh, 2006. Um, it made it to a lot of best of the year, best films of the year lists, and critics liked it. Um, and it was also nominated for three Oscars, Best Cinematography, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Editing. It won some BAFTAs. Um, but it only earned six, it, it only earned... Um, was it 70 million at the box office it actually earned less than its budget and after that corone dropped off the radar for what he described as quote five of the most intense difficult years of his life yeah when i saw that film i was like oh man clive owens winning like best actor uh julianne moore's winning like best supporting actress like this is going to be a fucking clean sweep of the oscars and it was just like nothing uh, i remember yeah. i forget what the films were i remember watching the oscars that year or, or I never watched the Oscars, but I remember reading the uh, announcements of the nominees. And I'm like, what? Like Children of Men is just relegated yeah. to like these technical awards, which is an achievement, obviously. Well, like if you make a film and it gets nominated yeah. for any Oscar, like you did something right. That's a huge achievement. But yeah, I just I don't know how anyone could watch that film and not think this is like by far the best film of 2007. But, well, if the Oscars have any reason to exist, it's to hold up films like this when audiences don't go to see them. Right. Like that's what always pisses me off about the Oscars. You know, it's like you you guys have one job and it's to make sure that filmmakers like this keep being able to make films. Right. And you always mess it up. Like you always ignore them 
And it's like, okay, well, if they make two other good films and one of them super Hollywood, then we'll acknowledge them. But it's like, how are you must be insane not to give this movie best cinematography. Like this movie has some of the best cinematography ever. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't win. And I think it's by it's, far, Cl- I think Clive Owen doesn't get enough credit either. I mean, I think it's by far his best performance. I'm a, I love Clive Owen uh, as an actor. I think he's a fantastic actor. Um, and I think this is his finest performance. It's greatly unfortunate that he has not gotten enough recognition for that. And as you said, that he was he was sort of an unofficial kind of screenwriter. He I didn't know this until you told me that he was actually like in a very collaborative relationship with Curion and the rest of the uh, production team. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's. I I think it it is kind of an unacknowledged, um, you know, it's it's unacknowledged how great he did, and not only like as a performer because I think his acting is great. I think Michael Caine is great as mm-hmm. well, and you know he's apparently dra- drawing on John Lennon when he's yeah because uh, yeah. he actually met John Lennon right, so like he would know mm. what John Lennon was like, um, and yeah, I I think just the physicality too of uh of what Owen did is just, yeah, it's in, it's incredible. Um, I'm actually uh, looking at the film that did win. It was actually, uh, I guess the departed, which won um, in 2007. Hmm. Um, But I mean, for not to even get a nomination. um, Right. And, you know, he didn't get a directing nomination. Um, It, uh, it's just kind of insane. And like, Little Miss Sunshine and The Queen and even Letters from Iwo Jima got nominated for Best Picture instead of Children of Men. Yeah, I mean, it's only gotten worse since then when you look at Oscar nominations. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, In my opinion, I don't want to sound too pretentious. I mean, you know, people have their different tastes in films, but I'm still bitter about Children of Men getting shafted. (laughs) (laughs) Ever since then, I've never looked back. Yeah. No, it's... I think everyone, I mean, the Oscars got their worst audiences, audience ever this year. It was down 60%. And um, yeah, I think you make a good point, though. It's like, all right, maybe there's a, a really well done film that just didn't hit with audience. Maybe the marketing is wrong or whatever. But a lot of films, when the Oscars function properly, it's like, you know, six months, nine months after the film was released, they get all these nominations. Then often the films are re released again. And it gives an yes. opportunity for that the the filmmakers to like recoup some money and it kind of puts more wind in their sails and like ensures that their career is not going to be over because they wasted $76 million on this bleak sci-fi film. But yeah, the Oscars have uh, long since ceased functioning like that. Maybe there's been some exceptions. I don't know. I don't follow the Oscars that much, but yeah, it is unfortunate the way the film system works now. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I, you know, like a movie like, um, I don't know, the lighthouse or something like that, which is, Another like bold, risky movie where it's like, this is not the sort of movie that a, a producer would want. Like it's, it doesn't have uh, blockbuster written over on it at all. But again, that's a movie that didn't really get any nominations. And it's like, you guys are meant to support movies like this and filmmakers. But right. anyways, that, we won't get on a, on a tangent <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the references in the film, because there's so many political and social and cultural references. I mean, we talked a lot about the the political references and stuff. I I definitely noticed like um some imagery that would recall like Abu Ghraib, you know, where it's um it, I I think it's towards the end where um they're they're entering the refugee camp 
And um, it just really, like some of that imagery, I, I, I would be surprised if they weren't referencing something to do with with some of that. Because I think the photos and stuff, like all the information about that came out uh, before they made this film, right? Uh, For Abu Ghraib? I believe so. Yeah, I think the Abu Ghraib thing was like 2005, 2006. Right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's possible. I mean... Apparently, there's a scene in the uprising sequence that was taken uh, directly from a photograph of a woman holding her dead uh, son mm. that was taken in the Balkans. And, um, you know, there's there's references to religious extremism, too. I mean, um, you know, the, the various kind of religious groups that you see in the background. Mm. Uh, obviously, the refugee crisis, immigration. Um, you know, Corona has talked a lot about how, you know... Um, Immigrants are always easy targets for people looking to govern by fear, by using fear. And um, also, uh, you know, the fact that he he makes key an African woman, which was changed, I guess, from the novel. Um, w- was it Julian in the novel that was actually pregnant? Uh, I mean, I read this like right after I saw the film. I don't recall exactly. But yeah, there, there I thought, yeah, there was no significance put on like the. Uh identity or like race of the uh the pregnant woman um that was very that was very much a deliberate move on the part of uh the filmmakers for the film version yeah yeah um i think it's yeah it's kind of interesting like corona is obviously he's trying to make a point about you know like putting the future of humanity in the hands of the dispossessed i think and you know there's a lot of references too to like climate change like theo works at the ministry of energy you see in a really interesting scene when he's first driving out with uh, with Jasper to his kind of country getaway or his country home, they're burning livestock, you mm-hmm. know, in the fields. And, you know, there's, of course, the, the, the flu pandemic as well, which is just like very ahead of its time. And there's just a ton of like cultural references. You know, when he goes to visit his his cousin who has this kind of like he, he's storing all these art pieces like he has uh, Michelangelo's David. And he also like, uh, you know, there's the the giant inflatable pig. That's a reference to like Pink Floyd's animals and mm. stuff like that. There's a lot of cool sort of cultural uh, references going on. And it's Slavoj Zizek kind of made this point about how like in the film they talk about what, why is it meaningful to own art in a world that's going to, you know, go away where where it can't be appreciated. Like it, it becomes meaningless without the social and cultural context in which it's valued. Yeah. For me, like, that's a good point for me. One of the striking scenes of the film is when, so Theo has to secure transit papers for key. Uh, so he lied, he, his cousin sort of, uh, high up in the government, they have this arc of the arts project, which I guess is to try to collect as much of like the global artistic heritage of humanity and put it in a secure place, which I guess the, I mean, I, the assumption is that, like, I don't know, in ten thousand years, when aliens visit, like, they'll real, they'll, you know, know who humans were, I guess. But, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, he goes and has dinner with him, and you know, uh, this is kind of a theme in the film. It's like this sort of the Brazilianization of the world that people talk about. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, because we've always made this distinction between like the core and the periphery. Like, you know, you have the core, rich, wealthy, imperialist countries, then you have the periphery. But like, the core and the periphery are bleeding into each other. So you'll have these like wealthy enclaves surrounded by like 
favelas in Latin America or just like slums in the rest of the world. I mean, think about Paris, right? Paris is just sort of like encircled by these like layers of uh, suburbs that are inhabited by totally marginalized uh, migrants. Um, right. Um, so you get that sense in London. So, you know, he has to get in this special car and it's this big convoy and they have to go into this like really heavily guarded area. So his cousin is this like high up, like, you know, minister of art or culture or something who's overseeing this project. So, you know, and he goes to dinner with them. And as they're having dinner in the background is uh, Picasso's Guernica, uh, which yeah. is about the Spanish Civil War. Um, uh, and, you know, the bo- the scene is the bombing of Guernica. It was, you know, uh, Nazis, Italian fascists working with uh, the Spanish fascists uh, bombing that city. And it's just sort of a nice art piece. It's sort of like, you know, like a painting of a flower on a wall to decorate your living room. It's totally decontextualized from its like social and political context, as you said. Um, And to me, that's like sort of a really subtle like dig at like the bourgeois conception of art, right? It's like this, this, the bourgeois get to like, even as the world is ending, they get to live in this world of beauty, whereas everyone else lives in this world of ugliness and decay. Um, So I think that's that's one of the more more understated scenes in the film. I think even more than that, they're actually commodifying the suffering of, you know, the underclass who actually has to live this. Right. And, you know, commodifying the, the, the history of, of that suffering as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, like getting into like, I guess more the analysis of the film, like, I think going back to this metaphor of, of infertility, as being, you know, a metaphor for hopelessness. And as Zizek says, kind of like, I guess, a, a, a metaphor for the lack of meaningful historical experience, you know, um, living in a world or a society without history and the inability to kind of make history, to move history forward. And like you're, what you're referencing before with with capitalist realism and stuff like that, the the inability to kind of like, create a new world and and move on and i think the film does a really good job of kind of embodying that sense of hope hopelessness and demoralization in the character of theo Hmm. you know because he's very much someone who begins the film kind of saying it's too late you know he doesn't really want to get into politics he walks by those immigrants in cages and just kind of ignores it. You know, he drinks, he gambles, he hates his job. He's just like, he's trying to use whatever is kind of available to him to kind of numb the pain. And, you know, as, as you move forward in the film, you realize that, you know, he he used to have this relationship with Julian, their child died. And with, I think the death of his kid, you kind of see, I think where the roots of his indifference lie. Um, you know, he, uh, at, at one point, um, Jasper says that their son was quote, their faith put in praxis, mm. you know, and it was their kind of political activism embodied. Uh, it's mentioned by, by Julian. And I think Jasper that, um, Theo, you actually used to be a political radical mm. and yeah, he kind of met. withdrew yeah. from that. Julian, yeah, that's yeah. how they met and and when he's kidnapped by the fishes like you see how far gone theo is from this like he 
he refuses to acknowledge the political conditions of Key's pregnancy. You know, he, he basically makes the point, just take them to the government, like tell them what's going on, things will be fine. And he refuses to kind of acknowledge the, the anti-immigrant uh, policies, the racism, and the fact that that probably wouldn't work out if not for the child, at least for Key, mm. you know. And he, he's just kind of oblivious to that. And I think, you know, his lack of faith and his journey to kind of, you know, find his faith again is so much stronger because this journey is not done through him necessarily, but in his relationship with the backgrounds, you know, with his his social context. By putting all the social and political details of the world in the backgrounds, they kind of highlight, I think, our alienation from our political conditions. Like, the movie does such a good job of highlighting Theo's alienation and really our alienation by, by doing this. Uh, Slavoj Zizek calls this the, the paradox of uh, anamorphous. And uh, where he says, quote, if you look at the social oppressive dimension too directly, you don't see it. You can see it in, a, in an oblique way only if it remains in the background. And we've kind of touched on this already, but it's in a weird way, instead of using the social conditions to enrich Theo's own personal journey, it's the other way around. Theo becomes what Zizak says, the prism through which we become more aware of the world rather than Theo's kind of interior growth. And I think that's, that is probably the biggest strength of the film and, and probably why it's remained in a lot of ways, so prescient today. Yeah, I mean, there's this like concept in Nietzsche, the which we talked about Francis Fukuyama earlier. End of hi- the full title of that book, "The End of History and the Last Man," and the last man is a concept from Nietzsche, because um, you know Nietzsche had had written extensively about like how the crisis of Christianity. He sort of like foreshadowed like what a lot of people would call postmodernism now. Um, although I don't really mm-hmm. like that term postmodernism; it's sort of thrown around loosely, but. That, you know, yeah. it throws up this like crisis for humanity, right? And that you, the last man is this sort of like, you know, competing ideologies have exhausted themselves. And the last man just sort of like goes to work, watches Netflix, you know, drinks, takes Xanax, you know, just like anesthetizes mm-hmm. themselves against the the dull world in which they're living. Um, but the cool thing about this is like, it's like one of the more hopeful things in the film is that like Theo sort of like, escapes that in some ways at the end at the end of the film because the film ends with him i mean he dies at the end of the film but like the human project boat does arrive and there's a lot of symbolism in that ending scene with key finally arriving at the human project and theo sort of like circling back around to his like uh faith in some way if you can describe it it's not so much a political faith but like he clearly like breaks out of this like cage that he was in when it's not a religious faith either i mean i think that's that's the great thing about the film in a way is that the film refuses to allow theo either to side with you know the religious movements um this kind of self-flagellating religious groups which are obviously i mean it's not too hard to read into what those would be today um and uh as well as like you know, the state authoritarianism, you know, like the the reactionary and, and brutal authoritarianism of the state. 
nor does it allow him to really side with the political movement of the fishes. I mean, Theo remains extremely skeptical of every sort of political movement around him. And he refuses to kind of side with any of them. The only thing he really finds in himself and the real growth is this kind of like duty, you know, like a faith in humanity. But it's a humanism that's obviously not rooted in like racial humanism or some of the, you know, conceptions of humanism from the past. I mean, it's very much a kind of, um, you know, multiracial inclusive sort of humanism that he's he's putting his faith in and this kind of duty simply to like get a woman from point a and her child from point a to point b and i i don't know i think like he there is something very moving in that and something that i i really connected with in that because when i look around and i think when a lot of people look around today like there's there's not a lot that you can put your faith into in terms of existing projects, you know, like it is kind of this in a situation of intensified alienation where despite having no connection to things or, or feeling no connection to things, you must, you know, kind of do your duty in terms of like doing something to kind of safeguard things and ensure something better you know like it's it, it's right to kind of never allow theo to fall into any easy option and it goes all the way in terms of exhausting every kind of social political movement like all right they're all untrustworthy like you you have to do this alone in a weird way or with key and i think by exhausting all that like it goes all the way to the end of of nihilism and whatever hope you see at the end of the film is so much more earned because of that. That's a really interesting way to put it. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the strengths of the film is that you can't extract some ready-made political project from it. Like you don't watch that Mm. film and you're like, okay, now I know what I need to do. I need to go join this organization and do this thing. I think it would be a, it would be a a much, it would not be a masterpiece if, if he had like embedded that within the film. Um, I think that it, that it ends on this ambivalent way with no like clear like answer to how to solve the predicament. I think it makes it a much stronger film because, you know, there are films like that. There are like films where like you watch and it's like, okay, you're supposed to go out and join your local branch of whatever group and like change the world, you know? And it's sort of corny. Yeah. It doesn't, it's much more profound like the way that he did it with this film. That's what I really love about movies made at this time and, and made by filmmakers who are, of kind of older generations, like there is this sense for certain movies made with like a social justice angle where it's like, we know the answers. Our goal is just to get you to understand what the answers are and agree to them. And like, there's something much more humble and profound about a guy like Cron being like, I don't know what the answers are, but I'm going to lay out the problem for you correctly, Mm -hmm. or at least how I see it. And I think like some of the thinkers that I really admire, like, at least acknowledging the problem, creating awareness of the problem is is so much more important in many ways than actually the specific solutions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think there are, there are times in history, and hopefully there will be again, where that kind of film is appropriate. I mean, there's you know, there's great historical films, political, highly charged political films, uh, you know, Sergei Eisenstein, et cetera, that do have like a clear, like kind of programmatic political message and are like calls to action. Mm-hmm. But 
I mean, that kind of film in this moment, I don't think makes much sense. Um, and I think that's why Children of Men is so important because it really captures like where we're at politically, culturally, et cetera. Yeah, there's this great uh, quote from uh, from Gilles Deleuze that I, was actually in my head the other day because, mm. you know, he wrote these really like dense, opaque books on cinema, which I remember like going through and man, they're kind of tough to get a handle on and they're they're quite obscure. But there's this one passage that really stuck out, which seems to connect to Children of Men. And he says, quote, the link between man and the world is broken. Henceforth, the link must become an object of faith. Whether we are Christians or atheists in our universal schizophrenia, we need reasons to believe in this world. And he's kind of proposing that cinema is like uniquely capable of restoring people's faith in the world. And he's saying like, not like a future world, not a transformed world, but just the world we actually live in, like our material messed up, hopeless reality, like believing in that again. And I think Children of Men kind of makes that point in a way, like through the character of Theo, through his journey, he's like, I don't know if she's going to make it. And she doesn't have to make it, Key and her child, for me to want to do this. Because he believes that, you know, this world is is not only, it's not only possible to save it, but you should try to save it in some way. And simply reestablishing that link and refusing the alienation or refusing the the alternatives that are given to him is is a very powerful move, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's this sort of thing. It's like, what motivates people politically? Is it like connection to past injustices or is it sort of an abstract hope in the future? I kind of fall on the former side. I mean, there's a great quote by Walter Benjamin, who I wish he had lived longer because he would have been a, an amazing film critic. But yeah, uh, he said that, you know, social democracy, uh, they thought fit to assign to the working class the role of the redeemer of future generations. In this way, cutting the sinews of its greatest strength. This training made the working class forget both its hatred and its spirit of sacrifice, for both are nourished by the image of enslaved ancestors rather than that of liberated grandchildren. Mm. Um, because I think there's sort of like a liberal way of thinking about progress and hope for the future. That's not very motivating for people. But if you like kind of, you know, nourish and cultivate this like, desire for revenge and injustice or desire for justice. I think that's a much more powerful motivator for people. Uh, but the thing about children of men is it's like, if the entire human race is infertile, <laughs> it sort of raises different <laughs> questions, but that just goes back to, again, like a thing I appreciate about the film is there's not some corny, you know, pre box, like happy meal political project for you to just like take out of the movie and go run around on the streets with. So, um, well, yeah, it, it's it, deliberately it's, ambivalent, which is why it's a powerful film. It's not afraid to invoke things like religious iconography, but mm -hmm. recontextualized in in you know, kind of like a a concern for the species and stuff. Um, very few films are able to do that, especially films that are like ostensibly leftist or at least leaning in that direction, where it's like we're not afraid to to talk about things like you know, religion and hope and, you know, but in a way that's not really identified with a political program and, and also not cheesy or sentimental at all. Like you said, um, I guess we'll have to wait for children of men too, to find out if key actually makes it, um, or made it to the human project. But, uh, 
Mike, I want to thank you a lot for joining us uh, today. And uh, do you have any final words on on um, children of men? Uh, not really. I would just say uh, for any listeners who've yet to see the film, uh, I think obviously both of us heavily uh, encourage you to do that. Uh, and if you are listening and haven't seen the film yet, maybe hit pause and go watch the film. You'll probably get a lot more out of this. But um, yeah, thanks for having me on the show today. This has been a fun conversation. And can you tell us uh, what you have in store for uh, Red Star Over Asia and how people can check out your work? Uh, yeah, we're on all the podcast apps, Spotify, Apple, all that shit. Um, just look up Red Star Over Asia. We're on Twitter and Facebook as well, at Red Star Over Asia. Um, our most recent episode was uh, about the Guangzhou uprising. Um, one of our co-hosts is from Guangzhou, so he organized that episode. Uh, should be pretty interesting if you're interested in South Korean political history. Um, and in the future, we're arranging uh, an interview with someone from the Seoul Women's Association to talk about South Korean feminism. Uh, we have a lot of shows lined up. Uh, some of our guys just recorded an interview with a labor activist in Seoul that's actually going to be released in both English and Korean. So it will be our first Korean language show as well. So uh, yeah, just look us up, subscribe, follow, etc. Um, and give us a listen. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you for so much, so much for the insight you brought today, and uh, great discussion, man. Um, I look forward to to hearing more of your work on Red Star over Asia, and uh, for everyone who's listening, if you haven't already, uh, feel free to subscribe to us, to like this episode, to share it. Uh, also, check out our YouTube channel as well. Um, I don't have a lot of content up there, but any chance I get, I try to make visual essays. Uh, taking selections from some of these podcasts. So I hope to do one for this as well. Subscribe to that. Uh, now it's dark on YouTube to see any more content from there. And uh, thank you for joining us today. Take care. Thanks, man.